Gentlemen, my Herren and Damen, welcome to episode number 26 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, it is, what day is it? It's Sunday. Let me look at my monkey calendar that I got for Christmas. Sunday, 13th. Sunday, the 13th of January in the year of yeah. the Lord, 2013. Exactly. So once again, it's just me and Mr. Finkler tonight, uh, no special guest, and chances are this is going to be a pretty short show today. Ed's got a headache, and so, you know, what that means when Ed's got a headache, he won't perform for me. Exactly. Yes. So before we get started, let's thank our awesome sponsors from Engine Yard, Engine Yard, Trailblazers in the platform as a service space, and more importantly, the awesome folks within Engine Yard who work for Orchestra.io. If you are looking for a sandbox within which to run your PHP applications, if you want it scalable, if you want decent tech support, if you want things that, if you basically want to have push button deploys, go check out Orchestra.io. Tell them that uh, Chris and Ned said hi. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'm glad to see. Like I, if I I visited uh, Engine Yard's site, I don't know, like a couple months ago, and now it chases me all over the internet. Oh, like one of those things where you, like, like for example, I'm getting a plumber to come into my house to do some mm-hmm. stuff because I'm absolutely useless at home renovation stuff. I have a, right. I have a, uh, the shower in our shower stall. The, uh, the tap is leaking, hot water. Right. So it's a nice little drizzle. So I, I can't fix that. So I called. Uh, so I, I'm. Went to the website of a, of like a plumbing place that I had over here at the house before last time I messed something up. And so right. now everywhere I go, their ads follow me. Right. It's, it's yep. creepy. So how do they do that? Cookies, I guess they write a cookie somewhere and yeah. that's it. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll mark a cookie from content loaded off of like, say, uh, the Google AdSense stuff. Right. And then it, they can, you can set it up so it will. It'll just appear like all over the place, which of course costs a lot more for the advertiser, but uh, apparently it works. So, yeah. oh, oh, you just showed the picture. <laughs> Sorry, the listeners don't know that. I'm just looking at this picture of some moron drove their car into uh, Apple Store in Lincoln Park uh, in Chicago. Right, but anyway, right. I-, I hate Lincoln Park, so I'm not going to talk about them. What the band? Yes, I despise the band. I, I think they're just limp biscuit um, with better marketing. Um, anyway, be. let's. Uh, I remember reading an awesome story about how somebody was being stalked. The lead singer of Linkin Park was being stalked online by uh, uh, by somebody who worked uh, for Sandia Labs down in uh, New Mexico for the U.S. government. Very interesting. Oh, is that right? Yeah, very interesting story. People should search for that and read it while we're rambling. So um, we got right now in our queue uh, three things that I want to talk about. Oh, and I also wanted to uh, mention also a big uh, shout out to um, Paul Reinheimer and the Wonder Network folks for providing providing the awesome live stream for the two and a half people who are uh, with us in IRC tonight. Yes, they have that cool Where's It Up API. Where's It Up API, and I keep telling uh, Paul that he is really knocking it out of the park with this Wonder Network stuff, and he seems to be suitably humble. That's just probably because nobody has offered him a whole shitload of money to buy his company from him. Right, yeah. Because um, that and- boy is going to go Hollywood once he has some money in his pocket. Right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know him, right? He's he's gonna totally do yes. that. Uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get underway. So the first thing I want to talk about uh, something on a little bit more serious note. Um, if you if you follow the twitters, uh, or if you've been kind of interested in online freedom and stuff like that, you may have heard that uh, Aaron Swartz uh, committed suicide at the age of twenty six in New York City uh, about two days ago. For those who don't know, Aaron Swartz. He uh, was one of the original employees slash co-founders of Reddit. He also did all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff in an incredibly too short life. 
just 26 years uh, with us on the planet. He helped co-author the RSS 1.0 spec. He helped create uh, an advocacy organization that organized the opposition to SOPA and PIPA earlier this, uh, I guess it would be earlier in 2012. Um, he just did so many things in the pursuit of making as much information free as possible to people on the internet. Um, so one of the things I want to talk about is, and Ed and I talked a bit about this before the show, um, being a Canadian, I don't understand the obsession with the second amendment of the United States constitution. I understand that the U S constitution, that amendment could be interpreted, uh, to give, uh, uh, regular citizens, the right to bear arms. And in this case, to bear arms, it means to have guns, that they have a constitutionally protected right to have guns. But something's occurred to me throughout this whole process, especially because of, because of what's happened to Aaron Schwartz and the Sandy Hook school shootings and, and all sorts of ridiculous uh, incidents of gun violence that people seem to think that having a gun will protect them from an oppressive government. And as an outsider, as a Canadian watching this stuff, I think it's, it's obvious to me anyway that having a gun is not going to protect you from your government. I think it's a very romantic notion, but when you consider that the government has, has, um, the army, the police, uh, all sorts of other weapons, drones. I mean, if you have, if you are a libertarian and you're on a compound somewhere and the government comes after you and they shoot and they blow the shit out of your house using a drone, I don't think you're really going to have much chance to fight back. So what's my point about this? Is that when you look at what happened to Aaron Swartz, Aaron Swartz was under indictment for um, stealing um, online documents. His crime allegedly is that he sn- he went into MIT's campus, found a network closet, hooked a laptop up to their network, and downloaded a whole bunch of articles that are technically free, but you have to have permission to download them with the goal of downloading all these articles and then making them um, freely available. So the organization he, he downloaded them from, when they found out what was going on, asked him to stop. He returned everything. The university didn't have such a proactive stance on saying they didn't think it was a big deal. And a very overzealous prosecutor looking to make her career, basically, as far as I can tell, decided to be super aggressive with the prosecution. And Aaron Swartz's family is now alleging that the way he was treated, the way he was being not just prosecuted, but persecuted by the government, led him to take his own life. So, I don't know, Ed. I mean, I'm Uh, starting... I look at this and say, if the government, and I know this is with a big G, if some very powerful organization um, that has influence throughout, throughout the society that you live in wants to make an example of you, and you know wants to punish you for something that you've done it appears to me there's very little that you can do uh yeah i mean that's that's obviously one big aspect of this story is um you know and i i really wasn't aware of it um i i was aware of the fact that this guy had uh had was was pretty uh, adamant about wanting uh academic papers to be available to the public and um, he had taken some actions that probably were some sort of questionably legal. Um, I had no idea that the dude was up for, uh, just because I really didn't, I wasn't aware, you know, I just wasn't on top of it. Um, uh, I wasn't aware that he was being, you know, threatened with what, 35 years in prison, something like that. One, one um, uh, thing I saw, for some, yeah, that some, I, one thing I saw you was know, I've known years. people who yeah. did far less stuff and, uh, you know, 
<laughs> and were in prison for a lot less time uh, or gotten out, you know, gotten a lot less trouble. It sounds like he did something that was illegal, but it wasn't necessarily, um, uh, it, it wasn't deeply heinous or something that you would think that has to be, uh, you know, prosecuted to the fullest extent, let's say, or something like that. Yeah, um, I, and I, I can't speak so much on the legal aspects there, but it is true that, I mean, I, I'm no constitutional scholar, but the Second Amendment comes out of, you know, a, 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 there's a few different aspects of it, but a, certainly a big part of it is to protect, for citizen, to allow citizens to protect themselves against uh, governmental abuse. And at the time the U.S. Constitution was written, um, hey, John, we'll get to that in just a second, okay? Um, this guy asking, he says, well, maybe should we center around mental health issues? Well, I think that's a very big aspect of it, but I also think that, uh, this, this is an aspect too. Um, that, uh, you know, I, I think that that has, that's a, a, a big motivator, a big reason for why the Second Amendment exists is, you, you, you know, uh, and I, excuse me, at the time of, uh, the time of the writing of it, um, it was much more reasonable. You were sort of on a more even playing field, I guess you'd say, um, if you owned a gun. Um, but technology for killing people uh, has advanced a lot since then, and uh, the uh, right to bear arms has not extended to the full extent of that, or to, to the top of that technology. So, you know, you can't own tanks and you can't own things like that. So, I mean, people would probably be like, well, why are you talking about gun control? It doesn't do with gun control. But it, it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting in that I think it does play into how do you protect yourself from governmental abuse and how does the citizenry do that? And I really don't have any answer for that. <laughs> um, uh, it sounds like, you know, this was a combination of things. Um, that it, it certainly sounds to me that like it was overzealous prosecution. Um, and I, how you protect yourself from, uh, how you protect yourself from, uh, from that kind of thing, I think is tough. Uh, I think it's, I think it's hard to defend yourself against, uh, you know, a, a party that knows all the ins and outs. And when you're not an expert in that and I, you know, um, and we're talking about the legal system. Uh, I think that's really problematic. Um, yeah, Ed, are you familiar? Yeah. Are you familiar with someone named Jacob Applebaum? Well, the name sounds familiar. Okay, he's I O Error on Twitter, and he's a mm-hmm. he's associated with the WikiLeaks people, and he does talks at all sorts of interesting conferences all around the world. And he was another guy like Aaron Swartz who got um, targeted by the government. And this, in his case, his targeting was because of his association with WikiLeaks. And he had a, a stretch of a couple of years where every time he would uh, leave the country, when he would fly back, um, fly back to the U.S., or even through, uh, he would often get harassed going through Toronto and other Canadian um, locations, that every time he came back into the country, he would be taken aside by um, TSA and Homeland Security people and harassed and grilled and asked where he was, what he was doing. And he had phones confiscated and computers taken away from him and all this stuff. He was 
being harassed by the government because they didn't like the people he was hanging around with and constantly trying to get him to reveal things and trying to get his friends to reveal things. And he talked about how he lived in um, fear that, you know, every night when he'd go to sleep, he would hope that he, would, he wouldn't be woken up by someone sticking a gun up against his head, that someone from the government wanted to ask him, a, ask him another set of questions that he had already answered a hundred times. Right. So especially in this day and age of the internet where information can flow a lot more freely around the world. And it's so much more difficult to stop things from getting out good or bad that the responses seem to be really out of proportion. Now it's like I said, I mean, did what Aaron Schwartz do was illegal. Okay. Again, I'm not a lawyer. Um, it sure seems that he did violate a few, a few basic laws, trespassing on our authorized access to a network and all these things. But to throw the book at the guy and say you're facing 50 years plus fine, 50 years in prison plus fines in the millions of dollars, it just, it, to someone, it just simply looks to me like we want to make an example of you so nobody else ever tries this again. Um, so, so also to go back to what John was talking about in IRC, um, Aaron Swartz also had a history of some mental health issues, right? Depre- he openly talked about depression and, and, uh, social anxiety and people who are close to them mentioned he had a way of kind of turning on people. After a while, he would look up to people as mentors. And at some point when he felt they could no longer intellectually um, keep up with him, he would denounce them as idiots and fools and move on to another set of people um, that were in the sphere of whatever he was looking for, whatever knowledge he was seeking. Cause it sounds like he was a guy who was insatiably curious and wanted to learn as much as he can uh, could about everything. And just people like that, I feel sometimes um, have a hard time fitting into a society where people are expected to not be so aggressive that way. Yeah, I, you know, there's uh, I, I I don't have any handy any stuff, but I certainly read a few things that talks about the relationship between intelligence and mental illness, and that there seems to be some pretty strong correlation there. Um, it a lot of times, you know, a lot of things that I read about um, Aaron Swartz after uh, I had heard about what happened uh, Saturday morning. Uh, it uh, it reminded me of a lot of stuff that I know I've gone through. Um, you know, issues of where uh, you sort of you're around people and they seem to be having fun and enjoying stuff, and when you're around it, you don't really like it, and it's not fun, or it makes you really uncomfortable, and you really don't want to be there. Um, I've uh, had. Uh, times where I felt suicidal or come close to doing those sorts of things. And, you know, obviously, thankfully I haven't done anything where to really hurt myself, but, uh, that, you know, I, I kind of get what the guy was talking, you know, I, I get to some extent what he was going through. Um, I think it's frustrating because I think, um, also, dep- you know, it, it depends on how, uh, how that goes. I think that sometimes with folks who, you know, like I didn't, I don't even know the guy, so I can't really comment really like his personality was like this or that or whatever, but you know, I don't know. I didn't know the guy at all, you know, um, only peripherally kind of heard of him a few times. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's hard for some folks. Uh, they always feel out of place because people don't really sort of think the way that they do. And, or most people don't, and it's it's hard to relate to them or to kind of to deal with 
the kinds of ups and downs that they have. Um, uh, folks who, you know, sort of, uh, they, they have, they have so much going on and, and, and that they could be so they they could kind of wear you out being around them. Um, that makes it really hard to, uh, I mean, <laughs> eventually you get so tired, uh, you know, you're trying to be helpful, but you, you know, he gets tired or you get tired of being yelled at or something or, or it's, you know, if he had, had, you kind of mentioned this kind of thing where he had a tendency to kind of, uh, you know, it, was, it seemed like a little bit of like kind of turning on people. You kind of use those words. And I, 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 I can see that because I think that's, uh, I think when somebody, uh, who has their emotions really drive them, uh, to go certain ways and they feel things really, really strongly, um, it's hard for people to understand what, they're dealing with and like why are they acting this way it seems really irrational and i know i have some of that stuff like um and i know it's really hard for people to understand why uh like not not necessarily like my reactions aren't completely out of the blue but it tends to be that i'll feel things more intensely than other folks or i'll get you know way more upset than i really should be for something that's not that big a deal right or things like that and um yeah, I, it really sucks to know that, like, you're like this and you just know that you're being a pain in the ass to people, right? And you know that it's hard to deal with. And, uh, I think that, um, I think that tends to alienate you even more. Um, I mean, this guy was not, uh, it, it certainly sounds like he would, he was very intelligent. I mean, he was doing, uh, pretty cool and advanced stuff, uh, I'd say, uh, when he was, what, 14 when he wrote the RSS 1.0 spec? Um, but I guess the thing that's just so frustrating to me is that I'm just really tired of hearing about people who, uh, who commit suicide, and it's so hard on everybody else around them, and a lot of the times it's it's something where they had a, a moment or a period that was really particularly dark and they felt like that this was sort of the answer for them. And I, I've, I've been in those places. So, so that part I'm speculating, but I, I know that how that can feel. Um, and I think the frustrating thing is that's, that's usually a, a passing thing or a temporary thing. You know, I don't, I, I you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I know that, that's kind that's kind of been the case for me is that you'll have sort of these episodes where things will get seem like it's worse and you kind of get in a state where uh stuff seems really really overwhelming and you just don't know what to do about it and there doesn't seem to be you know any other better solution like you just really can't take this anymore and uh i think that that it, what really sucks is when you get into a you know when you hear about people you know who who do this and and folks thought yeah I know he was depressed but I didn't know how much I didn't know how bad it was and I guess that's it doesn't surprise me but I I'm just tired of it I'm just tired of hearing about people doing this I'm tired of it because I just it, every time I see it I'm like god damn it you know I just wish that. Like, I wish that uh, I could have just listened to the guy, right? I didn't even know him, but I just wish I could have listened to the guy for a little bit and been like, yeah, dude, I understand. I understand that, you know, um, and maybe just gotten through this part. Or maybe he had taken time to go and, 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 and had, you know, somebody to talk to. 
Um, maybe he didn't he didn't feel like it. You get in that state where, he, man, you know, but that just really sucks, and it really sucks for all the people who who cared about him and loved him, and and uh, now he's gone. Um, let's let's hope that in yeah. the future that maybe the next big um, big uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe this next big issue that they learn to deal with is uh, to stop the stigmatizing of people with mental health issues, because you're right. It just one individual's problems um, can really cascade out of hand and affect uh, an incredibly large number of people. And um, often people are very dismissive of those who have mental health issues and somehow implying that it's not real, that it's it, they're pretending or they just need to, you know, suck it up and, and all those right. things. So, um, I, yeah, and I think it gets really hard. And look, I, man, I don't know. I really, I don't know much about it. So I can't even really speak to this. I know that's the case that for some people, like you, there, so like here, here's the thing. It's like how much of, uh, it, it gets particularly hard with people who have mental illnesses and, and they have it, they might have a tendency to, to push people away or they tend to be distant already or they have a personality. Like, what's the difference between somebody being mentally ill or just being kind of a douchebag, right? You know, I don't know. I, I guess, the I guess the issue is like, are they functional in society or not? That's you know, that's made it some de- degree. Maybe that's the definition. You know, are you functional in society? Well, if you're not, then maybe you are mentally ill, right? Uh, and I don't know. Uh, that gets into a lot of you know stuff about well, how do you define mental illness? Is it really an illness, or is it just my brain works differently than yours, and somehow I'm ill for some reason? You know, I don't know, but. That's um, a, a whole issue we could talk for we could yeah. talk for hours and hours about that. So let's just right. uh, let me close this by saying, um, Aaron Swartz, you were only with us for twenty six years. Um, you will definitely be missed. Right. Rest in peace. But all the stuff that you championed um, continues on without you. So on that Debbie Downer note, um, I wanted to talk about. Wow, yeah, that's a bit of a weird transition about into a yeah. new sponsor for the podcast. Yeah, um, I'm sure this is exactly the intro he was hoping for. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, oh man, my we, God. We may be cashing that check and running to Rio now. Yeah, yeah right. Um, yeah, so we actually have a new... Yeah, let's, let's liven things up a little bit here. Cause, hey! Hey, everybody, guess what? So we have a new sponsor, the awesome folks at uh, EasyBib. Uh, are looking to add developers, junior and senior to PHP developers. If you are in Europe, if you are near Berlin, they are looking for people like you with a flexible schedule, three to five days a week. You will start off working in their awesome offices in Berlin, but um, eventually you could work f- remotely. We were talking to them about this. So they're saying, here's the official blurb. EasyBib is looking for junior and senior PHP developers to work with our team in Berlin. Candidates will also have a chance to be an instrumental park Park, park, instrumental part of the New York City team through daily online communication. So, what does EasyBib do? I will tell you. EasyBib is a bibliography and research management platform. Over 37 million students a year use uh, use their service, and hundreds of schools and universities have signed up, including New York University, Ohio State University, and the International Schools of Dusseldorf and Bavaria. If you're interested in finding out more info or you wish to apply, send some email to my boy Till. T-I-L-L plus P-H-P at Imagine Easy, all one word, ImagineEasy.com. 
Yeah, so definitely check them out. Uh, that sounds I, uh, like a really cool thing. Uh, 37 million uh, users is nothing to sneeze at, my friends. Yes. Um, well, you know, it did kind of tie in with the academic paper thing. Uh, absolutely. So let's move on to the next thing. We talk about, yeah, so like I said, Easy Bib sounds like, and Till is a cool guy who I've known for a little while. He did actually did some uh, my SQL consulting work for me a super long time away. Yeah, I got to go to Segway school. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, Till's a good guy. He's a, he knows a ton about MySQL. And also, more importantly, he's a testing believer like I am. Testing believer. That's right. He's a TDD fiend, so it's good. So let's talk about. Good. We don't talk about other podcasts too much, and I try not to mention when I sneak an appearance on another one for fear of angering Ed. But yeah. uh, there's a long-running podcast called Hypercritical, and I have the good fortune of never ever having listened to a single episode, so I feel no uh, remorse about uh, them ending. So ending. So why don't you talk a bit about that, Ed? Why you think well, it's an important thing to talk about? Uh, I don't know. I was. Just, it was something I kind of had on my mind for a little bit. Um, I uh, I listened to a few different podcasts. Actually, most of them not technical. Um, uh, I listened to some uh, some comedy podcasts and some uh, like a couple sports podcasts and stuff like that. But um, I don't listen to a lot of technical ones. Um, and I think the reason why I checked this one out is it was uh, I guess was now. Um, it was uh, done by John Syracuse, who um, you might know him as the guy who has written these very, very detailed reviews of every single version of OS X um, for Ars Technica. The guy from Ars Technica? John Syracuse? Yep. Okay, yep. Yes, that John Syracuse. All right. And uh, so he wrote uh, all those, and I always really enjoyed them. Um, because I really like the detail and I like that he sort of, he, I guess I liked his perspective because maybe I kind of related to it because I, I felt like I related to it as a, uh, more of a developer type. Um, and I felt, I always appreciated that he was very detailed in his examination. And if he had, he, he was not. He didn't sort of gloss over stuff that I thought was problematic, um, or he thought he was problematic. And he went into a lot of detail about, you know, pluses and minuses. I always felt like he, he weighed his arguments well. Like, he, if he made an argument that this is problematic, well, why is it problematic? Or why was there some, why didn't he like this? Well, this is why, and this is why I address that. Now, you might make the argument that da 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 da, and this is why I don't feel that way, and I could, but I always felt like he was very even handed, and I liked that a lot. Um, I've tried to listen to a couple other Apple, like sort of Apple tech related podcasts. And I have not liked any of them because I felt like none of the ones I read um, were particularly, I felt interested in being evenly sort of critical of, of Apple. They all seemed like they're at the end of the day, they almost always really liked Apple and always viewed everything else in terms of how does that relate to Apple and nobody else can do as good a job as, as Apple can. And I never really found that particularly interesting because it was kind of like rooting for the Yankees. I don't know. I it's uh, yeah, and, and maybe it came out of you know they were Apple fans before Apple became the Yankees, but I don't you know I don't really like rooting for the front runner after you know ten years. So. Anyway, I really, I always enjoy his podcast, and it, it was about Apple and other stuff and related things. But so he would talk about, 
other kinds of topics. Um, but I, I just always really enjoyed it. It was, and like I said, it was the only Apple podcast I ever felt like I could get into. It was on this, uh, the five by five network, which, um, had, used to have, uh, you know, what the hell's that guy's name? John Gruber's podcast and, and Mark Arment and, and stuff like that. And I don't know. I tried to listen to him. I just didn't like it. It's just, you know, again, it just didn't, they, they didn't, the other ones didn't do anything for me, but I always really liked his take on stuff because I felt like he was really even handed and, um, what didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like he came there with a, uh, I don't know. Anybody really has an agenda, but I guess I really liked, uh, like I talked about, that. he's very even-handed in his arguments, and and oh, just always enjoyed it. Felt like I kind of relate to the guy. So is it so one of these things where he would? I mean, because I've read some of those uh, War and Peace length uh, articles about uh, various uh, Mac things, especially his reviews of the of the releases of operating systems. So right. I, I think one of the things that I do like to listen to from um, in any medium, not just tech ones, not just podcasts, but even watching TV shows, uh, are people who know how to be who who know how to be both a fan of something, but also be objective enough to be willing to point out the flaws. It's like me with um, with baseball. I'm a humongous baseball fan. I'm a humongous Blue Jays fan, but I think that I'm neutral enough that I'm willing to talk about. When uh, when I feel they've made a mistake, or point out, I'm, I'm not just going to be blindly saying they've done an awesome job about everything and they can do nothing wrong. I'm, it, it, I think it's, I think it, I find something good about someone who's really knowledgeable about a topic and is a fan, but at the same time is willing to say, yeah, I think the following things that they did are awesome, but here's why this other thing that they've done isn't so awesome, and puts it in uh, and tries to put it in a non fanboy context. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that. And if you're into sports and listen to, say, sports talk radio or podcasts or things like that, you'll run into some where either um, either they're just uh, – you have sort of like, f- like fans who are willfully ignorant um, and just don't know what they're talking about. And I – okay, so the worst part, the thing that I hate about – even good sports talk radio all the time is when they have callers call in because they, these guys don't know what they're talking about. I don't want to listen to those guys because they don't have, they, they, they're not in a, they don't know about stuff. For, so I don't really care about their opinion because I, I'd rather learn information and, you know, learn, uh, you know, people who are kind of even handed about it. So there's either, you either kind of get these fanboy types or you get people who play to the fanboy types, um, like, Skip Bayless on ESPN. I don't know if you get to watch that dude up in uh, Canada, but um, goes up every once in a while. He's just a, he's just a he's he's effectively he's like the columnist, and he was a columnist. I I think he's still a writer. Um, he's just stirring shit up, right? He's he's a smart guy, but he's kind of like the John C. Dvorak of sports. Like right? he's just stirring <laughs> shit up, right? So to relate it, so everybody else can understand. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just obnoxious. He's just stirring stuff up because that's what gets ratings. So he always talks, you know, just, it, it, and it's, it's just like he, he's just intentionally saying ignorant things and, 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 you know, being ridiculous about stuff because that, you know, that gets listeners. Yeah, um, a, a longtime friend of mine, uh, does the, uh, call in show for the Blue Jays on the, on the, the big humongous, um, Toronto based, uh, talk radio station. Sure. And, 
it's funny because the people who call in, many of them are actually in their phone calls, actively hostile towards him. It's a yeah. thing of beauty to listen to him spar with these people. And he has no hesitation to tell callers that you don't know what you're talking about. And right. it's always, in, it's incredibly fun um, to listen to him. And I keep threatening to, I, I message him on instant message once. So I keep threatening to call in and just have the most ridiculous arguments with him for however long until they kick me off the air. So, um, but it's just funny watching him, uh, uh, watching, not so much watching, but listening to him talk to people who think they know something about a topic, but really don't. And that they're really just, they're, they're trying to project authority and knowledge when they really don't, when the topic that they're trying to discuss is way more complex than they really understand. Yeah. So, so I sort of, so I, if, to some extent, I sort of feel like it's, I think sports is, is, it's a broader, like more people tend to be interested in professional popular sports, but I think it's sort of the same kind of thing a little bit. Um, I, I, you know, I okay, my favorite team is the Chicago Bears, and I really I'll sit there and listen to people talk about what's going on with the Bears all the time. But I don't want to hear a bunch of meatheads talking about stuff. Like I actually want to hear there's, you know, people who know what they're talking about and can say intelligent things about it. And uh and and they also may be, you know, they're may, Chicago people are, you know, talking about Chicago teams, but they can put it in the context of other of 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 the league overall and they're not going to BS you one way or another. It's sort of like a sports radio. It's either the team is you're, you're either you're like a homer and you love the team, or you're always constantly trashing them. And it really bugs me when you hear these guys who are just constantly trashing them, or just like say, "Look, look, the Bears are great," you know, because you sort of make more money, I guess, being either way as opposed to just speaking intelligently about stuff. But you know, so you kind of got to pick and choose. Um. But I really, uh, you know, I always really liked his take on stuff. Like I said, I felt like he spoke about things intelligently. He was even-handed. I think that um, when Apple did stuff that was uh, that he felt was dumb, he would call them out on it and call them out on stuff they didn't do well. Um, uh, and went into great detail about why they didn't do those things well and why other companies do do those things well, and you know, vice versa. So um, I always liked that. Uh, it wasn't, I guess the difference is, like, he would talk about, like, you talk about, about, a lot about, like, so, so here's the topic that came up a lot, TiVo. And he would go into great detail about all the problems kind of he had with TiVo, but at the end of it, he was kind of like, but I still use it because it's the best product out there, you know, that does this. And I, I may agree or disagree with that, but that's fine. Um, I think the difference is, I would hear a lot of people just say, well, you just get a TiVo because it's the best. Well, I really, I value more when I feel like somebody has intelligently, you know, think, thought about it and, you know, gets into it and uh, has some sort of reasonable argument for it, which, you know, with, uh, you know, information and, and can kind of take you down a thought process and stuff. And he does that really well. And I think that that was why his, like, super, his reviews are super long. So he always wanted to get as much detail in as possible and didn't want to feel like he was leaving anything out. He wanted to be very complete. And, uh, his podcast relate, you know, reflected that a lot too. And I think it's worth it, you know, not like these dudes need more listeners. Uh, but, um, 
I, I, I think it's worth going back into their archives and, and listening to a lot of those episodes. I think they're really good. Um, one I learned a lot of stuff about was he talked a lot about file systems in a couple episodes. Um, and basically, it, it was one of the best explanations I had heard about file systems, which is a topic I don't really know a ton about. I know a little bit about. Um, and he really got into uh, how, what, you know, sort of how different file systems do different things differently and why at the end of it, it was why does HFS plus really suck and, uh, and, and why it sucks that they haven't gotten a replacement for it yet. Um, and, uh, I really enjoyed those episodes. Those two would be ones that you check out if you're kind of into that stuff, but, uh, he does good stuff. I always really liked his work. So it's a bummer. Cause that was sort of, that was one I listened to, uh, for a long time for like, a, I didn't catch it when it started, but I started about episode 50 so I listened for about he did them very regularly, like weekly, and uh, maybe we could learn a thing or two from that guy. But um, but he uh, he did a really good job with that. So I listened about a year. It was just really good good stuff, and I always felt like I uh, I learned something and it was enjoyable. So uh, so you should check it out. It's good stuff. Yeah, because I know as stunning as this sound, I'm pretty sure at some point development hell will run out of things to talk about. So it's something interesting to think about <laughs> about going, but in the concept of uh, the idea of going out on top because. So few um, really good things um, uh, end at the top. It's just like in pro sports. There's this. Um, there's a before we segue to our next topic. Um, there's a, a fantasy sports um, writer, statistician guy that I've been buying his books for about 15 years now. Um, yeah. And he came and in conjunction with this other guy named Bill James, who's a longtime baseball statistician, they came up with. Um, Two career paths for baseball players. They call it. They call. They have the George Brett career path and the Steve Carlton career path. And the George Brett career path. George Brett was a longtime baseball player. Played for the Kansas City Royals. He's the last guy to get closest to hitting 400 for a season. He hit 390 one year uh, in 1980. He was an amazing player. Played his entire yeah. career for one team. He retired while he was still a good player. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then they have the Steve Carlton. Um, career path. Steve Carlton is a Hall of Fame um, pitcher who pitched for many years for the Philadelphia Phillies and was the absolute, one of the best pitchers of his time, but he kept pitching until he was terrible and he was so bad that casual fans forgot what an awesome player he was in his prime. So, So, but in so many cases, not just people, but events, um, I don't know another way to call it. Just things that happen on a regular schedule, they keep going until they're way past their prime and they're no longer de- delivering anything remotely close to the value that they initially did. So it sounds to me that, to use a really tortured uh, analogy, that hypercritical followed the George Brett career path. Oh, yeah, definitely left you wanting more, right? And uh, and so definitely, yeah, George Brettian in that uh, respect. I always, you know, it's funny you bring that up, I, and it, and I guess I I would never want to. I guess the argument on the uh, you know pro Steve Carlton or his career path is that you know why if a guy really likes doing it, why shouldn't he do it as long as he can, right? 
You know what I mean? Oh, I see the size but, of it. I mean, you know, yeah, um, I see the size of it because what happens? Yeah, I, I see it. Like part of me says it's awesome to go out and retire while you're still really good at doing something that you love. I th- and, and I think and, that's and go, what fans want. Yeah, that's right? what fans want. They don't want to see some guy pitch for a, you know play for another five or six years and be absolutely terrible and actually right. hurt the teams that they're playing on instead of helping them. But man, you know, I would imagine if you're a high, if you're an elite level athlete. And you right. ju- and that's all you've ever known. I would imagine yep. it would be really hard to give it up and just go back to not being not being that elite level athlete. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I I think that's definitely the case. Uh, I am not sure that I can relate to that really uh, in uh, to to any degree. I'm not sure I'm elite level at anything. Don't worry, but, you and me, buddy, uh, we're both following the Steve Carlton path in our compu- yeah. in our programming careers. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, uh, with Steve Carlton, you might have to have a peak. Um, uh, but, but yeah, man, I remember, see, I, I only remember Steve Carlton from the Phillies days because when I was a kid, I was a big Phillies fan. So I knew Steve Carlton and I was very excited about Steve Carlton, but yes, I hadn't realized that he had pitched that long that they sort of forgot about. Oh yeah. He bounced around from a couple of different teams before just packing it in. Right. Yeah. And speaking of packing it in, we have another topic. (laughs) Oh yeah. You know, I don't know. I'm loving the sideways today. I know. It's, uh... This one feels almost a little tacked on at the end, but but I know what you mean. Um, this is actually sort of technical. I was, I've been messing around more with. Um, uh, oh wait, well it came up uh, when I was redesigning the Dev Hell site, which of course I I don't know if everybody's been to it. devhell.info. Um, but uh, I've been using uh, we use Octopress for that, which is basically a. It's like a, a really uh, advanced uh, – it's built on top of the Jekyll, like, static blogging thing, which is written in Ruby. I use and it then, for my um, own blog as well, Octopress. Right, right. Yep. Use Octopress for mm-hmm. that, right. And uh, let's see here. And it – and but he uses uh, – excuse me. So I redesigned the um, the website for the, the Dev Hell site because um, I really wanted it not to just look like a – plain old um like a plain old octopress uh, page i sort of wanted to give it a little bit and i worked on it but then i was like oh, i really got to put a bunch of time into it and that was hard but eventually i got it figured out um but it uses a octopress uses a uh a thing called sass um which is a like a css i guess you'd say superset um and it compiles down to css um so normally I'm not necessarily a huge fan of that stuff. Um, but that's usually because I end up learning the first thing. Um, and I do that. I learn that stuff a lot. Like, like if you talk about like, like I'm, I learn JavaScript a lot and I'm not mostly interested in languages that compile to JavaScript because I know JavaScript and I don't want to learn another language that just gets me to the same place I was. So, it's not as exciting for me. So, of course, I think that it's terrible and nobody should use it. Um, and you know, it was really the same way for a long time with CSS. And, and there's really kind of two, I guess, bigger things that uh, where they have it's sort of like CSS plus some more advanced features. Um, and then it compiles down to CSS. And one of them is called Less, which I've messed with a little bit. And then the other one is Sass. Uh, and. 
I, uh, I I think the thing you realize is once you if you start building stuff like really big stuff with CSS, um, where you have lots and lots of styles, um, some of the some of the things that are missing in CSS uh, that you really wish it had uh, become sort of painfully obvious, um, like. There's no, I mean, there's nothing in CSS uh, that does variables, for example. So you can't be like, we'll just assign, uh, you know, this col- let's say this color thing uh, or this representation of this color, this color value is what the word I was looking for, to this variable, and then you can just put that variable every place you want to reference that color. Well, you can't do that in regular CSS. So what you do is you end up copying and pasting everything, right? Um, there's lots of stuff with... Uh, kind of esoteric property names, um, uh, especially with different um, vendor prefixes. So, like, you might be able to use stuff to round the corners of rectangles, and you can use border... This this The CSS property is called border radius, but although I think most of the browsers now support just plain old border radius, it used to be that you'd have to use all... None of, they were all experimental, and so you'd have to use the different vendor prefix versions of those for, like, all of your browsers. So it'd, it'd be, like, dash moz dash border dash radius. And then for WebKit, it'd be dash WebKit dash border dash radius. And then, and then you know, for Operate, you'd have a separate thing, too. It was a huge pain. And then let alone, like, if you want to support, like, i6, and it was like, oh, use some DX filter crap, which has a completely different syntax and what have you. Well, so one of the things that, that it does that's nice is... um. Uh, less does to some extent, and SAS does, I think, is even a bit more powerful in this respect, where you can basically write sort of, um, I don't know, sometimes they call them mix-ins, or func- they're sort of like functions where you can set up a, sort of a template and say, uh, yeah, I, I guess, they, I guess they're, they're a really basic function where um, you say, you take this little template and say, okay, plug the variable into the, all these places. And then down in your code, you can just call that, that function name and pass it a value and it will fill that stuff in for you when it generates the CSS. Um, there's nothing like that in CSS, uh, by itself. Um, and that really makes things a lot easier if you have to start applying this thing in more than one place. Uh, and then, um, what was the third thing I was thinking of? Uh, oh, well, so CSS, like, the definitions of things aren't hierarchical in any respect. Like, you can't sort of, like, nest a definition in um, where you say, let's say you're talking about a property for one selector in CSS, and then you uh, are talking about a property that's going to be applied to a child of that selector, um, you can't just like say there isn't any kind of thing for syntax where you could just be like, you know, hierarchically say, okay, here's the stuff for this, you know, selector, and then within these curly braces that follow that, um, I can put stuff, other selectors in there, and they'll be interpreted as childs of, of the one above it. Well, that it really helps things out a lot because if you don't have that, you end up having to write stuff out all on one line, like or it's, it's all at the same level, right? But you'll have to write these big long um, style thing or these big long uh, selector definitions with all these uh, hierarchical selector things to, to pick. Okay, this child that's down in this one, but then you want to do this child down in this one it means you have to do a whole new you know selector definition and stuff like that. Well, CSS really sucks in a lot of those ways. It sucks in a lot of ways. Um, it, it looks like it was designed by a committee because it was. And um, 
So I sort of got I, – I was reminded of how much I – I, for a long time, I used to really be like, no, I, you should just use regular CSS. I don't like using other stuff. I don't want to learn it, and so it's stupid. Well, like a lot of things, there's usually a place where it it does it is useful for people, and um, it just might not be that you've gotten to that place yet, and maybe you never will. But in my case, as I started working on much larger projects with lots of lots of CSS in them. Um, stuff like that became a lot more interesting to me so that I wasn't having to write out huge, you just huge repetitive code stuff. Um, maybe I'm speculating that writing plain CSS is a little bit like writing, um, it's like writing everything in, uh, basic before, well, and basic nowadays has like these things, but before basic had functions, right? They didn't have like subroutine definitions. And so you just have to like, Use go-to statements to kick yourself back and forth all over the place, and then uh, days because, fondly. Yeah, I know you remember that stuff. I'm sure, uh, and I mess around with that a little bit. But um, having being able to do things like define subroutines or you know stuff like that really, really makes your life a lot easier when you go beyond a certain threshold. When you're like, oh, you know what? I want to take this and apply this to this larger problem because I feel like I've got a handle on it. And then it turns out that like. Oh wait! Now I have the same like the same value defined in like seventy five different places across twelve files, and how do I do that? And CSS by itself just doesn't have any support for making that easier. It just doesn't. So, um, I really find these things uh, useful uh, for these larger when you start getting into larger projects. And uh, I was I, I was I was sort of reminded of that that one that. Uh, SAS and, and less I, uh, are, are pretty interesting. Uh, and I think they're worth checking out if you do, uh, if you end up doing CSS work and you, uh, want to simplify that to some extent. I think it's worth the, putting the time into to learn about it. And then secondly, um, it reminded me that a lot of times, in fact, I would say most of the time, when I look at something and I say, I do not understand why this person did this, it's stupid. That really what it is, is it probably made a lot of sense to them, and they were in some kind of use case where it really added up for them, and uh, you just haven't gotten to that use case yet. So I guess it sort of reminded me to sort of keep an open mind about that stuff. Because I was like, oh, that's stupid, you should never use this. So things. let me see for if years. I can kind of understand what the real purpose of SAS is because as somebody who doesn't have a ton of experience of trying to um, apply large amounts of CSS to an application, right. it sounds like SAS is essentially almost like a framework to, um, to try and tame what look, I mean, CSS looks to me, it could like really quickly spiral out of control. I've seen CSS files that seem to go on for pages and pages and pages of, of we start off with the base and they have all these exceptions for this, uh, with a div, with this ID, we need to apply things a little bit differently. So am I correct in assuming that SAS is just a way to make organizing that complexity easier? Yeah, I'd say basically, um, the idea is that it adds some, some, some sort of ma some some four I guess I'm looking at the site now. It really adds like a couple major f features into it. The first thing is variables that so you can take a take values and then reference those values you know all over the place by just referencing the variable right. So that's a concept that as a programmer it okay that makes a lot of sense. 
why would you not have that? Well, they're not in CSS. You don't have anything like that. And you can imagine what it's, it would be like to do your, you know, to, to, uh, to go through life without having variables where you just have to like write the, the values out each time, right? That'd be a huge pain. So a lot of the things you end up using variables for will be things like, well, I want to have this, uh, like every place I want to use, like say, let's, uh, it, most common thing is probably a, a, a color value. And like, I want to ha- define like what our major color values are. So you might have six or seven, right? Um, and we need to be able to use those throughout all of our styles. So that way you can just define it once and say, you know, you call it blue or whatever. And then you could just call this, you can reference that blue any place you want to. And that's the right blue. And you're not having like, and then when you go back and change it, you only have to change it in one place. That's, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is, uh, you don't have to go back and like, I have to search and replace, you know, grep through it or, you know, uh, search and replace through the, all these documents, you know, just to have one thing. Um, and then the second thing is the nesting thing I talked about by being able to sort of hierarchically nest selectors and you can't do that in CSS. Um, and then there's what they, what I was calling functions, they actually end up calling mix-ins. But I, again, the idea is basically that it, uh, it lets you sort of apply um, like the sort of like templates or sets of, of properties to another thing. And it's it's it, uh, to stuff without, so that you can just say, um, they have an example here called mix in table base where it's like, okay, apply this. So all the table headers have these things and the TD and the TH all has a padding of two PX. And then what you can do is, um, you can just say, "Hey, uh, grab, the, just reference this mixin called table base, and then it will apply all those settings. You know, all that stuff will be generated out for you, so that you can reuse that stuff over and over." Um, and yeah, so really, those are sort of like the major. I guess that really the idea is that make you not have to repeat yourself so much because what you find again with CSS is that as you write stuff out, as things get bigger. Um, you just end up repeating yourself over and over and For over. For sure, and this right. real, well, I see that yeah. all over the place in CSS. Well, so yeah. SAS sounds like a pretty awesome tool. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I'm sorry, we both went dead silent at the same time. God, no, I, oh my God, whatever, bro. Um, it just sounds <laughs> no. SAS sounds like it's a really helpful tool to help keep your um, keep your CSS organized. Do you think it's a, a tool that? Um, is one of these things that you should be using it right from the start when you're working on a project, or is it one of these things that you can bring in halfway through when you realize that your CSS is getting out of control? Well, that's a good question, and I think that this kind of goes into a lot of tools like this, um, especially, I think, with when you get to their documentation, I think they're really oriented towards people who already know, say, CSS. Um, and when I say a lot of tools like that, I think... I think most of the stuff for like compiled languages that say a lot of stuff I've read, said, read that say compiled to JS or compiled it to Java bytecode, they would make references to stuff like this works like such and such in Java. And when I would try to read it, like particularly the Java bytecode stuff, I'd read it and be like, I don't, I've written Java for like 10 years and I only wrote a little bit back then. So I don't know what you're talking about. And basically I can't learn your language now. Right. Um, I think it's a tendency. I think there's a tendency for, those things to be like, this is just like this thing you used before, but this is better because da, 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 da. the the bytecode stuff's a little different because usually they're writing out completely different languages. But anyway, the point is, um, 
I would say you should really learn how to do CSS first. Like, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, you know what, I really want to start messing around with CSS. I think you need to learn sort of the ins and outs of it first, but then you can start kind of a... And I think the problem you'll get into is that as you're learning CSS, if you're doing it within the context of SAS, it's going to get confusing because, like, the selector rules and, like, you know, syntax definitions and stuff like that, um, you'll be like, well, why doesn't this work? Well, it's not clear why it doesn't work because you're bouncing back and forth between, okay, this is regular CSS and this is SAS. And, you know, SAS, the, again, the, it doesn't, I don't, I think you'd run into some problems with that. So I would say you kind of want to learn CSS first. Um, there's a, but I guess I'd say, um, is this kind of like the CoffeeScript versus JavaScript argument, too, that the idea that in order to gain really good benefit from CoffeeScript, you need to know JavaScript? So, that yeah, I mean, I'm kind of saying that. Like, I think you would have trouble, um, although, although I would say SAS is uh, the most common syntax, is nearly identical to CSS. It's really just a superset. So, it, like... Um, it's very close. Uh, not like CoffeeScript, which CoffeeScript really looks fairly different from JavaScript, I think. Um, the, uh, so, but it is definitely the case that I think, I think really what it comes down to is documentation about like, is this written from a standpoint of, and tool support too? Is this written from a standpoint of somebody who doesn't know any JavaScript, who's never done browser programming before, and are they going to start off with CoffeeScript and are they going to be able to do it? I think, yeah, maybe you could, but I think it's a lot harder. Um, I don't think this is as problematic with something like SAS, but I think it is, uh, it is kind of hard to do. Uh, it's, I think you're going to make it harder on yourself doing that. So I would say you'd probably want to learn at least the basics of CSS and learn how it works and some of the quirks and weirdness about it. And then I think what you do is as if like if you had a large, a project that you're starting off with and you're kind of, it's going to be a larger project or um, that I think would benefit more from that, you know, eliminating repetitive code and stuff like that. I think that would be a good time to say, okay, now I'm going to take something like SAS and, and, and try to learn stuff with it. I think the other thing that I'd probably recommend is there's a pretty good guide um, that Jonathan Snook did and uh, called scalable, scalable and modular architecture for CSS, which I think is a, it has a lot of good stuff about um, sort of tips for how to organize your CSS stuff. And uh, that is a link which I will put in chat and also in uh, in the notes. But uh, I'll have to give Jonathan a the most shout awesome out. Uh, URL smacks.com. Smacks. Yeah, so uh, and so he's got some training stuff and things like that. So if you wanted to dive into it a lot, I think did you know that he's an old Cake PHP guy, Jonathan Snook? Yeah, I knew yeah. he had worked in that stuff for yep. a while. Yeah, yep, good guy. Yeah, he is a really and a good Canadian guy. to boot. Yeah, to boot, yes, um, from the Ottawa so, area. You're right, right. And of course I'm uh, right. what do you mean you're right? Of course I'm right. You're right for once. Oh snap! Zing. Um, so yeah. Uh, that's my little thing about SAS. So, 
<laughs> all our awesome discussions, they all the same in some way. And yeah. And I'm done talking. And I'm done talking. Well, I think it, this is a good yeah. uh, I think this is a good point to end things for tonight, Ed. Yes, probably. So thanks to everybody who showed up in IRC to hear us do uh, talk about Aaron Swartz and get things to a total bummer. And then I segued really awkwardly over to talking about our new sponsor. And then from that, we segued over to talking about um, Hypercritical and how cool mm-hmm. it can be to listen to a podcast where people are passionate but also willing to talk about the bad things about the companies that they love. And then finally, where Ed gave a really great overview of why, if you are working with really complicated CS, why you should take a look at SAS. So this has been episode number 26 of the Development Hell podcast. As always, you can find us online, uh, devhell.info, with with our awesome brand new redesigned website, including, I might add, a really cool blog post that talks a bit about the technology that we use uh, to record the podcast, where Ed goes into a little bit of detail. Ed, I thought it was really well written. Well, thank you. I uh, intend to work on some more of that when I feel human. And, uh, yeah, so I, so, I hope people so che- like So that. check out, because yeah. we plan to mix in a few more things like that going forward. The blog should be more than just uh, the recaps of the uh, podcast, in my opinion. So you can mm-hmm. also find the podcast, um, you can listen to individual episodes. Every single episode we've ever done is available through the website. Also, we're on iTunes. If you listen to us on iTunes, please, 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 please go and rate the podcast, because it provides valuable feedback to us. You can find us on Twitter. We have a DevHealth-specific Twitter account, um, Dev underscore hell uh, you can find mm-hmm. me on twitter uh grumpy program without the u you can find ed at fungatron with the u uh, let's thank our awesome sponsors from engine yard trailblazers of the platform as a service yay. Uh, industry yay engine yard um also specifically the fine folks who put who work on orchestra.io which is their php offering if you want to be able to run your php code in a push button sandbox that is theoretically scalable you should check them out and also we want to thank our new sponsor um the awesome folks at easy bib Easy Bib is based out of awesome Berlin, Deutschland. They're looking to add some junior and senior um, level PHP programmers. Please check out the link on the notes for the website. Uh, it provides a link that you can go and check out all the descript- all the information to do with the position. Uh, if I can bring it up real, real quick, I'll do Till a nice favor and talk about EasyBib is a bibliography and research management platform. Over 37 million students a year use the service, and hundreds of schools and universities have signed up, including New York University, Ohio State University, and the international schools of Dusseldorf and Bavaria. So as always, mm. thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to all you guys. Good night, Internet.